welcome to the Frogcast. We are excited to gather and recap the Frogs' 29-22 victory over the 15th-ranked Oklahoma State Cowboys. We're going to talk about fumbles, turnovers, missed field goals, stepping out at the one, and whether you like it or not, the Frogs have a winning season. That and a whole lot more on this episode of the Frogcast. Billy Wessel, Je- or J- Billy and Jeremy, how are you guys doing? It is nice to have you here this evening. Give me a check-in. How are we holding up tonight? Well, I'm good, but I think everyone wants to hear about Jeremy. That's the most exciting uh, update here. I- I'm fine. Nothing new with me. So, Jeremy, you take it away. I'm on the road to recovery. If I cough tonight, please excuse me. I'm still battling that, but, uh, man, I feel a lot, lot better. I'm starting to egg on the subscribers a little bit more on the board. I love doing that. So once you guys know I'm I'm doing that, you know I'm getting back to normal. But appreciate everyone's prayers and thoughts during the time I was sick because uh, I promise you it's different for everyone when they get COVID. And, and mine was bad and my wife's was bad. And we got through it and uh, ready to get back to 100% activity and, and work and keeping everyone up to date. Well, we are so glad that you are doing better. Um, you know, we we texted a few times through all that, man, and I, w- I wouldn't wish, wish that on anybody except Art Bryles. So I am, I'm glad you're on the road to recovery. I'm glad that you're holding up all right. Good news is we get to talk about some positive things this game. Hey, the Frogs feel like they're on like a 13-game winning streak. So let's dig into this win over the Oklahoma State Cowboys. As I said, whether you like it or not, the Pokes were ranked 15 in the college football playoff rankings. So let's take a look at that first half. First half was was not pretty, especially until about a minute left in the first half. Frogs were down 13 to nothing. Offense was kind of sputtering. We had a lot of things to talk about, like fumbles and fumbles and, and fumbles, and we'll, we'll get into that. But, Billy, let's just talk about the first half. What what went wrong, especially you know right up until the Frogs punched it in there with 53 seconds left? What, what was everything that was breaking down as you were watching and covering the team for the first half? Was well, it felt like it was just a uh, referee interference most of the time. Like TCU's offense was sputtering. There's no doubt about that. But uh, the score early on was ref seven, Oklahoma state six, TCU, nothing because that Zach Evans was clearly down. They reviewed it and still messed that up. So I'll never understand what went to that call by the big 12 refs. Yeah. The offense looked bad. Simply put, it looked like they were trying to get, uh, get away with what they used against West Virginia. And that clearly wasn't a work. They ran the jet sweep, what, th- uh, four times on a five-play stretch or three out of four. And I was like, okay, cool. We're doing this. They're pulling out this bag of tricks again. Uh, but eventually they realized Quentin Johnson's back out there and they started utilizing him, uh, hitting some deep balls. And, and it started to look fun. Football got fun again when the restaurant stopped to review every other play. Yeah, there were a lot of reviews. Um, you know, we will talk about it towards the end of the game. The Mike Gundy got a free timeout because of a review that everyone knew was a catch. But, you know, one of the interesting vocal critics of the the jet sweep as a as the base offense was Cavante Turpin on Twitter. I don't know if anybody saw that, but uh, Turpin weighed in there. Talk about a blast from the past, no pun intended. But uh, Turpin was not happy with with that offense. Jeremy, what did you see in the first half that put the Frogs behind the sticks over and over in that first half until they were able to punch it in there with less than a minute left? I agree with Billy. Uh, Usually I don't put too much blame on refs, but they really were so involved in this game, uh, making just the oddest of calls. And I'll, I'll disagree with Billy a little bit. I thought that first possession TCU had, they were moving the ball fairly well. They were getting first downs. Uh, they they were converting uh, nice run plays, and when Zach Evans fumbled, he was cl- his progress was clearly stopped. 
and that just kind of changed the momentum a little bit. Uh, I, I think it was, it, it was a, a multitude of things. I even made a comment that the way they were sputtering, it didn't look like they were going to score on offense. And sometimes I just use that reverse psychology to, to make sure TCU scores just to help you guys out. Cause <laughs> I want, I want to make sure if I say something negative, then it comes, it comes to be positive and people can jump me and, and, uh, but it's just a little reverse psychology there, but no, uh, I think the uh, the play calling was kind of suspect early on, but again we saw Max struggle passing the ball uh, early in the game, and and he wasn't hitting guys, and you had a couple guys with key drops. But it was it was weird after they scored that touchdown late. It was like a switch came on, and I couldn't wait for the second half to get started. And it sounds like you know I'm just making things up, but I really couldn't because I felt like what we saw at the end of the first half offensively was going to carry over into the second half. And obviously it did. And, and uh, not, not the entire first half, but that last drive they had was pretty impressive. But I I think at some point they just decided, Hey, we've got to call the plays that best fit our quarterback and continue to run the football and and see what happens. Well, I've always felt like Max when he doesn't like in the two minute drill is when he feel like he's playing his best. He doesn't have to sit. He doesn't have to think. He can just play. He can just react. And he's the kind of player that is so good at reacting and, and just using his instincts and whether running, whether throwing, doing whatever he does best. Do, uh, like He just does well in those last two-minute situations. Like you saw, they had the 47-yard touchdown drive to get on the board. And then the next two drives after that to start the second half, you mentioned the flip switching, that a 75-yard touchdown drive and a 68-yard touchdown drive. And it was nothing before that. It was – Sure, that first drive was successful, but it was the seventh play when they fumbled it. Yeah, they, they had two first downs. They were still inside their own 45 when Zach Evans had the fumble. So, I mean, they were moving the ball, but that drive was nowhere near over. So, it, it's hard to be like, oh, they had something going and the refs took it away, and, and they did. But it's like I'm not motivated by that when the next drive they went three yards, and then they went 49 and missed the field goal. So, that's something. But uh, it still felt like – the, the refs had their hands all over, and the, deep, and the offense was not doing well until Max got that uh, hit of adrenaline, if you will, by being in a two-minute situation. He said, hey, let's go do something here with our backs against the wall in the final minutes. And that seemed to uh, carry over in the second half. Absolutely. And, and you're joining the party, Billy, because a lot of people on Horn Frog Blitz, myself included, I think Jeff's part of the party too, is we, we've wanted to see Max run that up-tempo offense since last year, even against SMU. Last year, when they went fast, he just plays better. It's like like you you said, he doesn't have to think as much. And we all know we're, we're football guys. We all know defenses dictate some of those things, and they play a little bit different toward the end of a half or, or late in the game. But Max just looks so much better when he gets to go up-tempo. The kid's been running up-tempo offense since he was 14 years old. I mean, he started as a freshman in high school. And uh, I, I think that's when he plays best. And I, I would really like to see them do more of that. I don't think we saw much of it against Oklahoma State because I feel like they thought, if, especially Gary, thinking if, if, if they get their offense off the field fast, it's just going to give an explosive offense like Oklahoma State more time to go down and score. But uh, the defense, we'll get into that later. But, I mean, I, I agree with you 100% about Max and playing fast. You know, over the, at the beginning of the shutdown, I started um, trying to be intentional about reading a book every week, and I ordered off Amazon the perfect pass, which is the history of the spread offense. 
And they they had it was great. It basically, it was the biography of how Mummy and how he developed the spread offense and the hurry up, no huddle, and all that. And they have this great story that they tell about the first time they unleashed the spread, no huddle, call it at the, you know get the ball snapped as fast as you can. And and Leach had this great quote that I'm going to kind of paraphrase. When Leach was the offensive coordinator and Mummy was the head coach, the very first time they went no huddle and just uh, erupted on it, they called it bandit, where they just ran the two-minute drill the entire game. He said, the less my quarterback has to think, the better he is. And then he added, of course, a line about how all quarterbacks are stupid and we should just take away their ability to think because it's Mike Leach. But I, I love that. It was like, you know, I'm going to get to the line. I'm going to call the play. I'm going to run the play as fast as I can. And I don't have to think about it. And, you know, we use this phrase like the game slows down for a quarterback, which I understand that. But sometimes I think, as you as you both have said, the game speeds up and Max gets better. And the more uh, the more deliberate he has to be, I think maybe some of his efficiency goes down. And the more it's we're going to get to the line, I'm going to make the call and we're going to get going, that that seems to be when he's at his best. Um, you know, sometimes he's able to use his legs in those moments, but I think sometimes he's just able to think, I just know where I want to put it. And if it's not there, I'm going to, I'm going to find the next guy. And if it's not there, I'm going to take off. So there's something about not having to think that seems to make this offense run better. Um, and so let's use that into a bridge about looking at what we saw from the frogs on offense, this game, the frogs put up over 500 yards, 501 yards against what a lot of people thought was the best defense in the Big 12. I think it might be West Virginia, but people have said Oklahoma State's the best defense in the Big 12. The Frogs go out there and they put up over 500 yards. They only get 29 points, but they put up over 500 yards, which should be enough to win you a game in the Big 12. Aside from going as fast as we can, which I think we see as, as an advantage, what else did you guys see from the offense that made you feel like things were going in the right direction to win this game? I, I think it was huge to have Quentin Johnston back. I mean, you got to have that down that downfield threat. And when you can just throw up a pass, like Max threw that one pass from his own five, basically threw up a prayer and Quentin answered it. Uh, that's what you were That's what you were missing last week against Kansas when they couldn't throw the ball very well. You have a guy like that that's explosive. And then Darius Davis, I think Darius Davis had the game that we were all kind of waiting uh, to see him have he he was explosive on the jet sweeps. He got open, caught the ball well, uh, and and I like the way Max got him involved. Crazy that TCU ends up with two hundred yard receivers against a defense like Oklahoma State. It's pretty impressive when we're all talking about how bad the passing offense has been. When you have two guys go over hundred yards against those guys, it's that's pretty impressive. But I. I got to keep giving credit to off to the offensive line. I mean, you have Blake Hickey starting at right guard, his second start ever, former walk on. You have Esteban Avila, Steve Avila, making yeah, his it first. Give me a minute to. Re- I was like, who is Steve Avila? <laughs> it goes by Steve. Like, oh, wait a yeah. minute! He's the he's, kid from Grand Prairie. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 big Steve now, um, but. Steve's making his first start at right tackle in his career. Played there in high school, but he's in, in college. He's making his his first start. And if you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember his name being called a whole lot, especially on pass rushes and, and, and guys getting to max. But the the offensive line just continues to impress me. They they really uh, opened some lanes in the second half. Uh, max took advantage of a lot of those zone reads and. You had you had uh, Zach Evans running hard. Barlow was running hard. My boy Amari's running hard. I mean, they they just really ran the ball well. But it, we can't we can't talk about 
their offense and, and gaining those kind of yards without talking about the guys up front and really giving those guys credit. And it's like I said uh, today, I posted something online about guess who Coach P was talking about. It was Jared Anderson, and I'll have a story on that tomorrow. But I think Jared Anderson deserves a lot of credit with the way the offensive line has played here in the last four or five games. Let me reach back, way back, for a memory. You mentioned Max rolling out to the five and unleashing down the field to Quentin Johnston. You want to know what that reminded me of? Black Friday, 1994. Max Naki going the other way. Billy's shaking his head. I don't know if he remembers this. Don't tell me how old you were. Yeah, don't tell me how old you were, Billy. I was only a freshman at TCU. But Max Naki rolls out to his left. They're going the other way. They're heading north. And Max Naki rolls out and hits Jimmy Oliver for a 90-yard touchdown pass. The fastest human being I've ever seen, Jimmy Oliver. Um, and that, that play reminded me of that, you know, late, you know, after Thanksgiving, he rolls out, just unleashes a prayer as far as he can. And a guy goes up and gets it. So I, lo- I love seeing that from, uh, I love seeing that from Max and I love seeing that from uh, Quentin Johnston. So, all right, uh, Billy, or again, don't remind me how old you are, but tell me again what you saw on the offensive side of the ball. Well, to, to kind of spiral off of what Jeremy was saying about the offensive line, one of the big sparks, as weird as it sounds, was T.J. Storman drawing the personal foul after Duggan scored from a yard out in the first touchdown. And I, you talk about wanting this offensive line to act tougher and be something more. I think that was a good example because we didn't see that fight out of this offensive line, especially against Oklahoma. There were some big hits on Max and some late hits on Max, and the offensive line looked kind of malaise about it. But Storman hit a guy late in that in that first touchdown. I think that set the tone for the second half. Again, they scored touchdowns the next two drives after that. The O-line has played much better. we got to give the credit where it's credit's due. Jerry Anderson's really turned this group around. And part of it is they're running the ball more and running the ball more effectively. We've always kind of thought this is a better – uh, run blocking offensive line, and that's made the passing game more effective. Even though you look at who caught passes in this game, it was Darius Davis, it was Quentin Johnson, and it was Darwin Barlow. Only three people that had catches in this game, which is kind of weird. Um, and two of those guys had over 100 yards, but I think spiraling into the offensive line, how much better they played, how much better they looked, has really opened up things more for Max in the passing game. And hopefully they get Blair Conroy back this week, and hopefully they can get uh, more people involved. Pro Wells was a part of Senior Day the other day, so get him more involved these last two games of his career and just see how it goes from here. Jeremy, you mentioned, uh, both of you guys did, Darius Davis. Um, I'll, I'll just be blunt here. This His first uh, couple seasons at TCU were not impressive, and he had um, the drops constantly. He mm-hmm. would be you know, wide open, on, you know, even on a, you know, one of those hideous bubble screens, and he would drop the ball. Darius Davis has some hands now. And let's go ahead and give credit to Malcolm Kelly. I don't know who's done what in the offseason. I don't know who's done what in practice. But you don't have that concern anymore. I don't have that Pavlovian you know, reaction every time I see a ball thrown to Darius Davis. So when you – you, when you look at that 73-yard touchdown pass he had, you know, they, they were breaking it down on, on TV as I was watching it. And, and Davis is, is barely even with the guy when Max unloads that pass. And by the time he catches it, you know, he, he's got space, he's got separation, he's utilizing his speed. And then he does what a wide receiver is supposed to do. He hauls it in, he stays in stride, and you knew that guy was not going to catch him from behind. So, you know, that was a great play call. I don't know what they did to set that up. I don't know if there was an advantage created by who was trying to cover him deep. But you got to give credit to uh, Darius Davis um, being able to catch that pass and haul it in because he's he's really developed as a quality possession receiver. And when he gets the ball in his hands, you just don't know what he's going to be able to do. And there's a high likelihood it's going to be something good. 
Right. And they're trying to get him more involved. If you even look at last week against Kansas, he had that catch in the end zone and they called it incomplete. And I think that wore on him a little bit. I, I believe Drew had asked him after the Oklahoma State game if it felt good to get a touchdown against the Cowboys, considering he had that drop last week against Kansas. And I mean, he immediately said, yes, it felt good. But he's he's worked hard. I think Doug Meacham gets a lot of credit since he's coaching the inside receivers. Uh, he's he's always had that ability. And just like you said, Jeff, he just had to become more consistent catching the football. He's always had speed. He's always had that ability, ability on jet sweeps. He's always he's, – he's one of those guys, and I mentioned this several weeks ago, when they go five wide – I wish they would put him out wide and just let him do a one-step slant against the linebacker and create that separation just like they used to use uh, Kevontae Turpin on. Because I, I don't think he's quite as fast as Turp, but I think he has similar playmaking ability. And I'm glad to finally see that they're getting him more involved. And, and man, it's Louisiana Tech this week. He's going to be so pumped to play that team because he almost committed. to He almost switched late to them. He knows a lot of those guys, all these Louisiana guys that play for TCU are going to be pumped to play against Louisiana Tech. They know a lot of the players, and, and I think Darius is going to have another good game on Saturday. Yeah, is this is his career kind of remind you a little bit? Uh, this is this is a, a deep compliment, not very deep, I guess. Colby Listenby-esque, where the first was about getting the hands going the first couple of years, and then once you became confident in him, it's like, oh, just throw it up there, and he will make a play. There's kind of that in your mind going forward. That's kind of the, the, the arc of his career. It's kind of reminding me of that. Jeff, like you said, as a freshman, you didn't really get excited to watch him. You you, you may see a, a decent punt return. But now as a junior, I think it's fair to say every TCU fan, every media member, when Darius gets his hands on the ball, you think he's going to score no matter what. Like He, he has that potential now where he, he anyone that watches him feels like he's going to score. Punt returns, uh, jet sweeps. I mean, he's, he's so elusive. And he's he's not a real big guy, and there's absolutely no knock on that. I'm not a big guy, so I love him even more. But the the <laughs> fact that he's the fact that he's so elusive and quick, and uh, it, it just he man, he has just improved so much as a junior this year, and I'm I'm really happy for him because he came to he was originally recruited as a cornerback, and teams started looking at him, including Louisiana Tech, wanted him at receiver, and and TCU basically had to get convinced that he could do that. And I'm and I'm finally glad that to see that he's being used in the offense, and uh, the way I think he should be. Yeah, there's no denying that Davis has made an impact. And what I think I get, I'm most excited about is what he's able to do in the special teams. You know, he is a great punt returner. Um, we, we you know, he, even when he's got to um, field it and and make a fair catch, he's still dangerous back there. And it's something that the opposing team has to work on and keep an eye on. And any, any time they can waste worrying extra, they can worry on special teams about Darius Davis is, is helpful for the frogs in the long haul. Well, let's take a look at some turning. Uh, let's take a, let's flip to the other side of the ball. What went right on, on the defensive side? There's obviously, you know, we got a big play in the end zone late in the game. That was a heck of a lot of fun to watch, but the defense really you know, did a great job. You look at what they were able to do, limit Oklahoma State to, to two touchdowns on offense. What did you feel good about on, on the defensive side of the ball? Because you got to give all the credit to the defense for holding Oklahoma State to two touchdowns offensively. Everything. I liked everything about the defense did. Again, the, the stat I, I saw after the game that really jumped was the four drives Oklahoma State had the, the fumble return for a touchdown right to start the game. So the other five turnovers, or the other four turnovers TCU had, those four drives 
resulted in three points and nine yards. That's it. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Wow. How stepped up time after time after time. How Trey Tomlinson, CJ Caesar, I know Tom Wallace had the one. You give him one. Just give him one off the bat because he's because he's a uh, he's going to be playing on Sundays here in a, a few months. Like give Tylen Wallace one. If you if that's all you allow, really as a big play in the secondary, good for you. You did a great job. Uh, those guys did fantastic. They were all over the place. The winners all, was all over the place. Kari Coleman was getting held every other play. They weren't calling it. He was in the backfield every other play. Besides that, so it just really just all around fantastic ever by the defense. And you really can't say enough. I mean, it, it's just remarkable how good they were on Saturday with their backs against the wall so many times. That was one of the best efforts I think I've seen them have uh, in the Gary Patterson era. I mean, to hold Oklahoma State to 15 points is pretty impressive. And, yeah, they they didn't have Chuba, and they were using a makeshift offensive line, but they had a makeshift offensive line last week, and Desmond Jackson rushed for like 256 against Texas Tech. So it's not like those guys were – totally new out of the gate and had never played before going against TCU. And Jackson still had a – I mean, he still rushed for 118, I believe. But TCU overall did a pretty good job against him. I was so impressed with the way they contained Spencer Sanders because I thought Spencer Sanders was going to be a guy that was going to go off for 70, 80 yards on the ground. And and overall, they did a really good job. They came up with key plays, like you said, Billy. Tomlinson had some key pass breakups. The – the one-handed interception by Merrick was awesome, but the the play, the two consecutive plays, I was really impressed with. And as as media and fans, and we watch TCU's defense, we we have this bad habit because we know at some point there's gonna there's gonna be a lag in their defense. At some point, they're gonna give up a big play. But the the possession Oklahoma State had after Merrick had intercepted it, and I believe TCU was on offense and. I believe it was the strip that uh, the guy got on Max. So Oklahoma State gets the ball again, and they're driving. And on third down, I think it was third and eight, they tried a little zone read with Spencer. And Kari Coleman completely ate him up on the play. Uh, he he did such a great job reading that play from start to finish. And it put them in a, a fourth and 11 situation. And then on fourth and 11 – O'Shawn Mathis comes flying off the edge, completely beats his guy, wraps around and pressures Spencer and basically hits Spencer as he's throwing it and, and forces Spencer to throw an errant pass. That was that was so huge in my mind, those, those two plays by TCU defensive ends. We're going to look up at the end of the year, guys, and we're going to possibly see O'Shawn Mathis as a first or second team defensive end in the Big 12, and we're going to see Kari Coleman probably get a ton of votes for the def- uh, the defensive newcomer of the year in the Big 12. And we're talking about early in the year how where in the world are TCU's defensive ends and you look at the last few weeks those two have played tremendously and I and I think those two plays back to back were really what the difference was in this game. Well, that's what I want to ask about Oshawn Mathis. How do we get him to play like it's week 7 instead of week 1 like to start the season? Like he always finished a season so strong. Yes. Uh, and always in the second year in a row, he's finished really strong and started off really slow. And I think the the improvement of Kari Coleman next year is going to play a big factor in that as you have, you have a guy you have to respect on that side of the ball too. It reminds me of Banigou and, and Collier. Banigou is the speed guy. Coleman's a speed guy. And they have a really uh, dominating press on the other side with Collier and um, as Mathis on this, on this new uh, defensive line. 
No, I think that's a great point, especially um, with Mathis. We need him to be strong week one, not just week seven. But I have Kari Coleman there next year. The two of them, I think that's a great comparison with LJ and with Ben. You know, we, you mentioned uh, Hodges Tomlinson, who I thought had an amazing game. Uh, he is the one that, that was there when Spencer uh, Sanders was trying to hurdle him, right? He's the one that came up underneath. Yes. Yeah. What? I know it always makes like a highlight or it's a fun moment or maybe everybody thinks they got an X button they can hit five times like Madden, make a guy jump. Why is this place so prevalent in college football now where someone thinks I can throw my body into the air over a Division One athlete, um, land, and then be able to pick back right back up at full speed? Because at the end of the day, the guy that's do, trying to do the hurdle and the leap usually ends up being on the business side of a two-by-four from the linebacker that comes racing in to clean up the damage. So that, that, that play always makes me shake my head, but I, was, I thought uh, Hodges Tomlinson did a pretty good job of dealing with Sanders when he was coming out on that play. It's, it's TikTok, Jeff. It's TikTok. <laughs> it's TikTok. They want that TikTok clout. Yeah. Are you guys following Gary on TikTok? <laughs> does, he, does he have it? No, he hey, I don't. Hey, I don't have TikTok on my TikTok. <laughs> At Coach P. No, I do not. Billy, I cut you off. You no, know, we, we, uh, we would. We would. We <laughs> Well, I'm way younger than than all of y'all, and I have like I don't do any TikToking. I don't know what any of this stuff is, it, but it wouldn't shock me with recruits and everything else going on nowadays. But they watch Saquon Barkley and Zeke do this stuff on Sundays, or well, we can try this on Saturdays, and it never works that well. Well, I remember when Quentin Johnston committed on Snapchat, and I wrote Jeremy, and I said, I'm not getting on Snapchat. <laughs> I'm not going to write a story on that. I cannot yeah. do that. <laughs> I, don't, I have Snapchat, and I think I have like 11 followers, something like that. And TikTok is just something that came on my phone. I don't even have an account. But TikTok is 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 really uh, really big for those teenagers. Are we going to talk about the we, – we talked about Hodges Tomlinson and how well he played, and C.J. Caesar gave up the long play against Wallace, but overall I thought he played pretty well. Can we talk about the job that Jeremy Modkins, that guy, has been able to, to complete with his cornerbacks this year? He's, he's using a guy right now, Caesar, that was probably fourth or fifth string to begin the season. And TCU sitting right up there near the top of the league in pass defense without a Noah Daniels, without Keon Stewart. You're having to play C.J. Caesar, and you're having to play a true freshman in Keontae Jenkins. I, I think the job Modkins has done with those cornerbacks, especially playing in the Big 12, man, he does that. that. That dude, we want to talk about coaches and whether coaches should should be gone or not. That that guy right there deserves a raise. Jeremy Modkins does. No, I think Modkins and Paul Gonzalez have earned like lifetime contracts with the job they've done the, the like in their careers here. It's been unbelievable watching what they're putting out there week in week out. And like you said, I think uh, even Tomlinson, like he was vying with Keon Stewart for the starting job at the number two corner spot, but yes. just what. What they've done so far now with your third and fourth corners, arguably, is just unbelievable. And they're, they're slowing down Big 12 uh, offenses. I get uh, it's Oklahoma State. Like, they're a great offense. They were my preseason pick to win the conference. You're not doing this against Kansas anymore, right? You're doing this against teams that can throw the ball, put NFL uh, quarterbacks and, and receivers onto the Pittsburgh Steelers, ironically. But you're putting guys in the recent years into the NFL uh, on Oklahoma State, and your defense is totally bottling up. So, yeah, so give me, give me Mockins and Gonzalez for life. I mean, last year, Dylan Stoner, he – and we hate to say it, but he abused Jeff Gladney. When they didn't have Wallace, Dylan oh, yeah. 
Dylan Stoner just beat Jeff Gladney really, really bad last year in Stillwater. And he had maybe a couple – I don't know what his exact stat line was on Saturday, but, I mean, they you don't have Hubbard, but you still have Wallace. You didn't have Wallace in the fourth quarter. I understand that. But you still have Dylan Stoner. You still have Braden Johnson, who, who also is a good receiver. So it's not like it's not like TCU was doing this against, like you said, Billy, a Kansas offense. This was against very good skill players and arguably one of the top three skill groups in the Big 12, in my opinion. Wallace was seven for 92 in, a, in the 55-yard touchdown. So he had six for what? 38, is that how math works after that? 37 after that? Yeah. Uh, Dylan Stoner was three for 53 total on the day with a long of 29. So, yeah, these these two guys got contained by uh, two guys. That, like we mentioned earlier, you mentioned Curry Coleman will get newcomers of the year. Well, I guess you can't really give it to Thomas and Canio because uh, he was around. Good to, I mean, well, sure, right? I don't know how they would do it, but. Yeah, like you mentioned on that Stoner twenty nine yarder, that really even that wasn't even the corners. That was really against your boy, you know, Garrett on that drag route. So, I mean, overall they they did a pretty good job. And uh, even on the even on the long route with Wallace on that wheel route, that was pretty hard for uh, CJ to cover. And <laughs> we all know about TCU and the wheel route, and it's hard when they have to make a switch. But um, overall, man, they they played really really good in the secondary. Can't argue with that. No, you cannot argue with that. So, as you said, uh, Modkins, Gonzalez, um, build a mustache because I really, I really respect what they've been able to do here um, this season, especially growing guys up and, and developing them as the as the roster has unfortunately fallen apart. You know, we, we let's talk about just a couple of key turning points. I always like to look at these as as when when did you think, hey, we might be able to win this game, or hey, TCU is going to take some uh, take control of the game here. Um, Billy, you already mentioned that we got a, a, a 15 yard penalty in the end zone after the play, and that somehow that became an infusion of energy into the offensive line. That was one of the moments I, I wrote down in my notes. What you know, each of you pick one. What did you see as a turning point where you thought, I think the frogs are going to have be in a spot to take control of this game because this play took place? When that Oklahoma State field goal went about three feet high and 35 feet. High. <laughs> I, but after that happened, I was like, okay, karma's on TCU's side now from how that first uh, first drive started. And I was like, okay, somehow they're going to find a way to win this game. And, of course, there were, like, I think because I, I overheard uh, two of, like, the replay, uh, like, announcers in the bathroom at the press box, actually, talking about how they went, they had eight reviews in the game. And I think all eight times they stood with the call on the field, which is impressive, like eight for eight on that. So uh, it, I think once, you, once that karma kind of kicked in, because I, I don't get how – like how that other one was a fumble either. I, I don't remember who had the second fumble. That should have also been a stop by forward progress. And but then they give forward progress to Wallace on one of those key first downs on a third down play uh, a few drives earlier because of forward progress. It, it just seemed to be back and forth. But once that kick went 35 yards wide of the end zone, I was like, okay, well, TC's going to find a way to pull this one out. Eight reviews that were none of them were overturned. I think that just speaks to the excellence of the officiating crew. Wouldn't you guys agree with that? <laughs> I guess they got all the calls, quote unquote, right. By doesn't mean much. I, I forgot to mention earlier. I had at least five screenshots blown up and sent to me on my on Twitter where Zach Evans's knee was down, and you know they were they, people were going through that like it was the Zabruder film. But people people were sending me pictures all through the game that hey, Evans's knee was down. So clearly, the guys on Twitter know a lot more than the review booth, and and I will actually agree with that. Jeremy, what did you see as a turning point in this game? 
the turning point for me came on that first drive in the third quarter because for lack of better terms, it showed that the coaches had some balls to call some plays. They they went for it not uh, on fourth down, not just once, but twice in that drive. That fourth and one, Max runs for a two-yard gain. He almost got stopped, but hit the effort, the second effort let him get a first down. They ran that play from their own 47. And we've watched enough TCU football to know they're they're facing a fourth and one from their own 47. What is Gary Patterson doing? Punt. He's punting. Punt. He is punting 10 out of 10 times. So that was that was the first eye raiser for me when I'm watching this and I'm thinking, holy cow, he's they're going for it on fourth down. I, I can't believe it. And then it wasn't what four plays later, fourth and one at the Oklahoma State 42. You're thinking, okay, this time he might want to pin them inside the five. He's gonna he's gonna send Sandy out. But when it's on the when it's on the opponent's side of the 50, he'll he'll go for it a little bit more often. And that particular play was a great play, a good play call, great execution by Max because the, the def- defensive end, Martin, completely dove down on Barlow. Max holds the ball, has nothing but green field in front of him, outruns everyone. And, and Barkley, I think it was Barkley, Barkley got a tremendous block down by the 10 to uh, spring Max into the end zone. At first, I thought they were going to call him for holding but Max ended up going around him and scoring the touchdown. I think those two plays were the difference because you you always want to have players that feel like they ha- feel like their coaches believe in them. And I think those two plays right there gave the players all they needed to know. The coaches believe in us. They believe we can execute, especially that one that they did from their own 47. I think everyone watching that game Billy, you probably thought the same thing. There's no way they go for this, but they did. Uh, fans are probably saying the same thing in the stadium at home, watching TV. No one thought that was going to happen, but I think those two plays were pivotal in this game. They executed both fourth down conversions. The touchdown brought them to within 16-14, and it gave them huge momentum. It gave them huge momentum on offense. The defense the next series, they force a punt, and what they do go when they come back out on offense – they go 60, 68 yards uh, and score a touchdown, and they and they go up. And so I, I think that first drive in the third quarter where you finally got a chance to to show that you believe in your players was the difference. Just so everyone knows I'm not a total homer, uh, Barkley was holding like crazy on that play. <laughs> so that, that, <laughs> oh, my gosh. you He had a handful of jersey in the wrong spot. <laughs> so, yeah, he, yeah. Did, he did spin them. I, and I was waiting for the flag to come out, to be quite honest. But I, it, 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 maybe that's just how, like Billy said, maybe it's karma. Maybe, you know, nobody believes in a makeup call, but maybe maybe it was a makeup call. So, yeah, that was uh, that was a hold. But, hey, it was a touch. It wasn't a hold because they didn't call it. That's what I will remind everyone of. That was not a they hold. Ran, they ran out of data on their review cameras. They couldn't go back and look at it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. All right. Well, we've talked about the turnovers enough. Um, Let's take a look at a couple of knucklehead plays here before we get into assessing the season. Jeremy, you had an article about this. Uh, We've got this, you know, after the 15-yarder, we have the squib kick. (laughs) And then later in the game, we have uh, the Darwin Barlow 
fielding the kickoff, stepping out at the one. <laughs> what 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 was what did Coach Patterson have to say about the two of them? Because both of those decisions seemed pretty knucklehead to me at the moment. Well, he didn't like where Cal um, uh, had kicked a, the squib kick. Um, he said, obviously, we didn't want them to return it to the forty, and uh, I I was losing my mind when they did that because. It gave Oklahoma State prime field position at their at their own forty to go down and score with uh, limited seconds on the board. Um, but coach said, I asked him what was up with that squib kick, and he said he, Griffin did not do what he was told to do, and that's the second time he's had that happen to him on squib kicks. So he's probably not going to let him do it anymore. But at the end of his quote, he said, "We won, though. Hip hip hooray." That's what he said. That's what, that's, what, that's what he that's what he said. I mean, he he was, he was very glad with the win, wasn't he, Billy? Yeah, that was one of the happiest press conferences I've ever had, especially over Zoom. I, I would have loved to have been in the room for that one, but like it reminded me of uh, when they won at Oklahoma State, I think in 2017, how excited he was about a win that at the time in 2017, I think they were still undefeated and vying for the Big 12 title. But this year, it felt like. He was crazy excited to be five and four, and I get how the year started uh, to get on to, to get on this roll here, winning forty or last five. But it felt like like man, he he feels like they just won a Rose Bowl. Like that's how excited he was. But because I, I don't know how they won that game, he didn't know either. There's no reason why TC should have won that game. Looking at all the numbers, there's no way they should have won that game. But between yeah, Griffin Kelly, he's supposed to kick it all the way to the goal line, and Barlow wasn't supposed to touch the ball at all. So yeah, I don't I don't know, man. That's what he's saying. I told him, told him not to catch it. He was kind of he was kind of going after the, uh, it, you know, we always talk about how he he really doesn't go after player. He was going after Griffin and and Darwin on those two particular plays, and we, as media, we could not not ask the questions. You know what I mean? Like, what was the whole thought process there? Because fans at home, they're they're blaming coaching, coaching. It's coaching one hundred and one. They should have said something. They should have done this. And sometimes they do. And and guess what happens, guys? That that little that little thing that we always forget about player execution, mm-hmm. and it, it we want to blame the coaches right off the bat, but those two things right there were player execution. This is nineteen and twenty year olds doing dumb stuff like it happens every day around this country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm shocked that a, a nineteen year old forgot something that he was just told. That's just so surprising to me. <laughs> And and I love the people that complain about it, that they made, you know, just flawless decisions when they were 19 years old. You know, they always executed perfectly. You know, I had uh, I had a moment that I had to uh, wonder about and I still haven't looked it up because I'm, I'm lazy. I know the rule in high school um, when I officiated high school football. You go back and you look at that interception that uh, Merrick had in late in the game. All right. So he intercepts it. He comes down with one foot in. And then I thought he had another foot that went out the back of the end zone. And so my mind, I'm in, in high school, that's a safety. Um, so if you if you gain possession and go out the back of the end zone, if you make if you gain possession and begin to move, like I, it's not a football move, but you begin to move forward um, and you then you end up going out the back of the end zone, that's a safety. And so I was wondering, um, did, did they not see his foot go out? Did his foot not go out? And I only had a bad angle because then he ran for like five steps. And then an Oklahoma State player came up and tried to knock the ball from him. So I, I was I was I, I need to look that up because that, that was like a 20 seconds. of Oh, crap. I hope that we didn't get another turnover or, or after a turnover. So 
that was that's something I got to go dig up. I didn't yeah, see thing about the interception. I didn't see his foot come down out of bounds. I, I thought I thought it was I thought he stayed in bounds. I was nervous when he was running around or kind of sort of running around like a crazy person in the end zone in the ball if he just fumbles it again. I pulled up yeah. now. Oh yeah, his foot did go out of bounds. Huh. Yeah. That's what I thought because I'm my eyes are trying to watch the feed on that from reference. So I was curious about that. So I was I was honestly more worried that he wasn't paying attention to his right side and and uh, probably could have got the ball stripped if the Oklahoma State guy would have been a little bit better. If number uh, whatever his name, I can't pronounce his name, but the number seven guy for Oklahoma State, if he was in the end zone, he probably would have stripped it. Um, that probably. play, that play in Quentin Johnston's long play when he hauled in the prayer and then was running and didn't see the dude to his left. I was waiting for him to get slammed or, or stripped from the left without seeing the, those two plays. Neither one of ne, Trey, Trey or Quentin didn't see the guy from their sides at all. Mm-hmm. I think the back judge was, judge was yelling or was pointing a uh, touchback pretty early on. So it looks like maybe his momentum carried him out of bounds on the play okay. or it would be a touchback. So that, that's a touchback in college then. Okay, that's good to know. That's good to know. Good work, Billy. Uh, yeah, watch the replay. I don't know. I just I tried to try to figure it out on the fly. Well, you're you're better than the replay officials that we had on Saturday. So. I keep my data. I'm good. Yeah, you are you are good to go on that. Someone made a someone had a great line on the board during the game thread that said something like, "Let's go to our 97 year old ex coach to get his thoughts on the on the review." Mm-hmm. The guy, the guy doing the review, wherever he was from, and he oh. he was something else. That's something else. That's um, Mr. Redding, and he literally wrote the book. I have like five of his books on my shelf in my office at home of officiating high school football and officiating college football. So, yeah, he they wheeled him in from the nursing home to do that because he was writing these books in the 70s. So he's he's been at this a long time. Yeah. He, uh, God bless him. He has no business being on TV. He might know the rules. He, he needs to get like a 25 year old to come in and, and be his uh, voice. And he just tells him what to say. So. Yeah. <sighs> well, you know, this does bring the big 12 play to an end this season. We obviously have the game against Louisiana tech who I know gloriously little about, but let's take a moment and assess the season. The frogs end um, five and four. They, they have their first winning season in the big 12 since 2017. So, you know, there's a couple of categories I want to break this down to. Is this season a success? Is it an improvement? Is it, is it a disappointment? Is it somewhere in between all of that? I don't really know how you assess the 2020 season with everything that's going on with COVID, with truncated schedules, with reduced rosters that have nothing to do with academics or health or, um, you know, um, any injury or, you know, anything like that. So how do you assess this season? Is it a success? Is it an improvement? Is it a disappointment? Or maybe you got another category. I think judging the whole picture currently, I think it's a success because of how it started. I think you you should have beat Iowa State. You uh, Max Duggan sat the first half or else you win that game. And if Max didn't get hurt against Kansas State, you'd probably win that game too. So it, it's that's a two game swing. You're, that, that puts you probably in the conference. That puts you in the conference title game if you win those two games. I, I just I have a hard time being really bummed about a season that finishes on a on a four winning four out of five. And you saw a lot of progress. We've been saying all along this team is built for 2021, and you're losing Wallow and and maybe another piece or two here or there. Uh, 
that, that we'll learn about in a few weeks. But uh, I, this team is built, and I'm starting to get a lot of confidence in the young corners, in the defensive line. I think Duggan has come a long way in the last couple of weeks. I view it as about kind of where I expected. I kind of thought they'd be in that that third, that second, third, fourth place area. And, and technically, if Oklahoma State loses to Baylor, TCU finishes fourth. And if Texas loses to Kansas, which I've done before, they can finish third in the conference this year. And that's and that I think is not terrible considering this team is a year away from what we all expected to be the year they make a run at the Big Twelve title. I think I think this is a year that's. I'm going to take off pur- my purple tinted glasses. Okay, I'm not going to talk like a fan here. I'm going to I'm going to talk straight up media. Uh, Billy, you'll appreciate this. Jeff, you'll appreciate this. I honestly think it's somewhere between a success and improvement. Okay, we can't deny the fact that this team finished above 500 for the first time since 17. It is a fact that there is improvement. They won more games. They won two more games this year than they did last year. They beat some pretty quality teams. They beat a a pretty good Texas team. They beat a good Oklahoma State team. They played Iowa State. What, that was one of the closer games Iowa State played all year. And as Billy mentioned, you're playing your first half without Max Duggan, and that could have been a big difference. Kansas State, I can't I can't come up with a good reason why they lost that game. I felt like all along they should have beat Kansas State. West Virginia, for whatever reason, they really, really struggle in Morgantown. But for them, for them to finish five and four as, as media – they were predicted to finish sixth in conference. Right now, they're fifth. That's an improvement. Um, I think if you look at the uh, statistical categories, they were pretty even on offense where they were last year. Scoring, scoring, and the scoring and total yardage in the Big Twelve in general was down from last year. I noticed that when I was looking at some of these stats. But TCU improved in scoring. They went from seventh to fifth in the Big Twelve. Uh, the passing they improved from ninth to eighth. Rushing, they went from third to first. Um, sacks against, they went from eighth to seventh. They've actually given up less sacks per game this year with all those different makeshift uh, lines they've put out there. They've given up less sacks per game this year than what they did last year. And and total offense, they're right there at seventh still. Um, we, we can look at what needs to be done offensively, but as I mentioned on the board, this we look at it like – this is a trend, okay? It is a trend that TCU has been middle of the pack. But this is also, you've got to understand, it's Jerry Kill's first year. It's Doug Meacham's first year back, even though he's not a new name. You have a new running back coach. You have a new offensive line coach, even though he's not a new name. They're all doing different things. And for TCU to go from 3-6 and six in the Big 12 last year to 5-4 and four this year, it's an improvement. I mean, there's... There's no denying that. There's there's no number you can throw in there. I don't care how close they played Texas or what if they didn't get the fumble. The fact of the matter is they're five and four. And like Billy said, there's a couple games in there that really, really could have been a lot different. But bottom line is it's a two-game improvement from last year. You go three and six to five and four. In mathematical terms, that is an improvement. So you've got to look at it that way. I don't get how people can be dumb or be bummed about this. I get how people can be dumb. It's very easy nowadays. Yes. I don't get how people can be bummed about a, a team being successful. And I, I think 
that goes back to the beginning of the year when people wanted change. They wanted a yes. whole they wanted everybody new and different in there, and now they've resurfaced to win four to the last five. You're going to see much less change, if any at all now. But if this team that doesn't change wins two more games again next year, suddenly that puts you from from five and four to, what, seven and two and, and puts you in the conference title game again. I, I don't know. I feel like this, this team is built for next year. I've been saying this for two years now that they were built for, for 2021. Uh, that I, I saw a lot of the writing on the wall and the way they've they've put the this this together the last few weeks. GP said after the Oklahoma game, the team is really bonded. They're starting to play fun, especially on defense. Fun is used word he used a lot back there. And you're gonna see most of those guys back. You're gonna lose Wallow. I, Merrick after this weekend, I maybe goes. I think we'll, we'll hear a word on that soon. Uh, but I, I think you're going to have a lot of pieces back for 2021, and you're poised for uh, for another really good season or run to the Big 12 title next year. And when I look at certain games, it, people may not like it, but that that win on the road at Texas was a good win. I mean, Texas was literally playing uh, for a chance at the Big 12 title game last week. I mean, they they lost to Iowa State, and. You're gonna. People are gonna say, "Well, they beat they beat teams that were sorry. The teams they beat didn't have a winning record. They were up thirty to nothing over Baylor at one point. Baylor Baylor played Oklahoma tough the other day. They played Iowa State tough. They beat Texas Tech thirty four to eighteen. Texas Tech scored sixty three points against Tech or fifty six, however many they scored against Texas earlier in the year, and they beat a good West Virginia team." Uh, you look at Oklahoma State. They held Oklahoma State to 15 points, and Oklahoma State's been scoring a lot of points. If you go back and and really do the research of some of these games TCU's played, you'll probably find that a lot of the games they played, they they held their the opponents to less than what they were averaging before they played. And if you look at the offense, as bad as it was at some points this season, they did better than what the defense was allowing. I mean, the defense for Oklahoma State was not allowing 500 yards per game. And TCU's offense went out there and and put that up. And if you go back to the very first game of the season, I know I said you can't really say what if, but they they played a 8-1 and one Iowa State team, a top 10 Iowa State team, pretty darn close. The, the score late in the game made it look closer, but again, you're playing without your starting quarterback who completely – lit up Iowa State's defense in the second half. And so it gives you that optimism to think, man, what if Max would have played the first half? That game might have been different. And Kansas State, I mean, like I said earlier, I can't make an excuse for Kansas State. That should have been a win. But I I, I truly think this is an improved team from a year ago. If you look at it, the Frogs have won four out of five. They have a chance to have won, to win six out of their last seven, finish seven and four, and this is not inconsequential. Let's say they get you know some rando Pac-12 Big Ten team in a bowl game and win. They're going to have six Power Five wins this season, and I think that's a that's of note because you know you can you can go three and six in the SEC and have a winning season because you play three or four you know podunks, and so getting six Power Five wins on the on the on the on the wall I think is good. Um, the only thing that keeps me from saying this was a successful season is, in my mind, um, our comparables are West Virginia and Kansas State. They're both developmental programs with really good coaches that do not have the talent that TCU has. 
And when you have, um, you know, that, that you're losing both of those games, the Frogs have to win those games. Now, I get, I don't want to swap the Kansas State loss in the Texas win because I like having the Texas win more than the Kansas State win. But, you know, when you have a developmental program, you don't have, and you didn't have a spring, that's going to set you back. Patterson makes the most out of the film room and the field for his development. They, they did not have that this spring. And then, as we all know, you know, COVID, you know, just kind of made its way around the locker room in the first week and second week of September. And so as they're all there trying to gel, they don't have that ability to um, to develop the way that they wanted with with um, um, the, their program. So by the time you get to that Baylor game, it's really hard to argue with everything that happened other than laying the egg against uh, West Virginia in Morgantown. And I think if the Frogs would have lost, you know, 24-14, 24-17 in Morgantown, I would completely call this season a success. But it's just within earshot of, of a success and you see the progress from last year to this year. And I agree 100% with what Billy says. I think it's going to have a chance to set you up for 2021 for them to have all of the weapons in place, so many weapons returning. And then even if COVID's still around in the spring, they know how to practice. They figured all that kind of stuff out. I'm sorry that Jared Anderson didn't have a developmental plan for a global pandemic in late March. <laughs> but other than that, I think we're in a pretty good spot. So I call this just shy of a successful season. I mean, looking at next year's schedule too. If you just flip the home and home and away, so who you're going, you have to go to Iowa State. You have to go to the two Oklahoma schools. That's always difficult. But I mean, you get Texas at home. You get Baylor at home. You get West Virginia at home. Again, we just said they don't play well in Morgantown. Uh, they're getting them in fourth next year, and you get SMU at home too because they're because they're going to make up that game here in fourth. So I, I, you'll like the way the schedule plays out. If you can split the two Oklahoma games, you're probably back in the Big Twelve title game. So. I don't. I I can't. I can't be too bummed about where the team's sitting at right now. Yeah. And if you and go, not, uh, not to get to twenty twenty one, but I think Oklahoma State takes a big step back next year. By the way, for sure. For sure. If if you if you look at what they have accomplished this season, they're five and four. If they beat La Tech on Saturday, and Jeff, as you mentioned, if they beat a, another Power Five school in the bowl game, seven and four in my opinion, is a successful year. Yeah, you had a couple losses you, you don't like, but seven seven wins is pretty decent in my mind. Pretty decent. Is it the standard TCU fans want? No. But I don't know how anyone would be able to look at what – what was the overall record last year? Was it five and seven or four and eight? I can't – was it five? It was five, and, five and seven because we lost to West Virginia on the last right, game right. of the year. Okay, so you go from five and seven to seven and four. It's it's not the huge it's not the huge jump like we saw from twenty thirteen to twenty fourteen and fifteen. But I, I still I still think you got to look at it from a perspective that it's an improvement. And the people are going to argue if the offense was different or if, if the scheme was different, you probably could be talking about a nine and two TCU team, but. There's so many things, and, and yes, every program across the country had to go through the same things. But there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things I don't think happened with offensive lines like it did at TCU. All all the adjustments you had to make. There's not very many teams out there that had their quarterback have a heart condition where you didn't even know whether or not he was going to play uh, <laughs> to even play this season. So I mean, you 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 had a lot of you had a lot of questions that were 
very serious questions. And it, it, and for them, with everything they've gone through this year, with all the opt-outs, with the transfers, players being injured, I think – Billy, what has Gary said? That they're down – at one point, they were down 30 scholarship players. Yeah, and that was a few weeks ago. But, yeah, and he was expecting, what, 14 guys back for this game this yeah. past weekend. So they, they've been shorthanded. Again, a lot of schools across the country have been too. And fans should honestly just be fortunate they've gotten – what ten games in? They're going to get the Absolutely. four games in, and, and so it's been a it's been a lot of drama, a lot of up and down. Uh, I but again, I'll say it's a, it's a success. I'm a bit of a homer though. Yeah, seven and four to me. I don't have to have purple tinted glasses on to 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 realize that that's success. That's that's my media talking, especially mm-hmm. when you have especially when everyone, coaches included, coaches included, they do these preseason votes too where everyone predicted TCU to finish sixth. If they finish anything higher than that and they and they win seven games, what, what happens if they just drill Louisiana Tech and they play a bowl game and have another good win and they end up in the top 25? Are we going to sit here on, on the board and say, this was a horrible year, we need to make changes? Yes, we need to make changes. Terrible. Well, and also looking- some, some, of it, some of it reminds me, and, and I've said this before, so TCU fans, don't get your feelings hurt. But even when Texas beat Oklahoma State, when Oklahoma State was number six, their fans were saying, this changes nothing. How does that not change anything? You just beat a top 10 team on the road. So how does how does not beating a top 15 team where no one really thought, us three, we all predicted the TCU Frogs would win, but no one yeah. was really no yeah. one was really thinking they were going to win that game heading into it. Well, in the last minutes we have left, um, I do. I, I want to talk about Texas and Urban Meyer. Before we do that, Bill, you said something that triggered me, uh, not triggered me, that, that t- ticked something in my mind. You said we should just be grateful that the Frogs are going to play 10 games. You know how many games Utah has played? One? Three. <laughs> Utah has played three games, and then they will get a fourth. So Utah fans, who are, you know, they're committed base. Uh, they will end up with uh, four games that they played, so that's kind of sad. I'm just grateful for the question or for the um, for the season that we had. So let's talk about Urban. We'll hit the board for a couple quick questions here, but I'll just throw this to the two of you. How shocked were you on a scale of one to ten that Urban Meyer danced with Texas and then left them at the altar? Does this sound eerily familiar to 2013? <laughs> What's the scale? Uh, the scale is one to ten. Ten is you are surprised, and one is you are not surprised at all. One, negative one. <laughs> I'll give it a two. I thought there was a chance because Urban Meyer technically doesn't have a coaching job right now, not one that he wants anyway. But Tom Herman again had him in the their third in the Big Twelve, and I get they have the they have the the standards of win the national title or bust. But then they've been bust every year for the last seventeen years. Then so yeah. Yeah, I'm. I was not shocked by that, but I will you tell you my Scheidenfrot went through the through the roof when I saw the article this morning that uh, Urban was not going to be going to Texas. So that that I, I was really delighted in that. I just like the fact that I'm no longer a moron for thinking Urban Meyer is not going to go to Texas. I, I I really like like to get rid of that moron term. I think he's your next coach of the Dallas Cowboys. I said it like three years ago, but I'll bring I'll bring that back again. He's the next coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, that would be nice. I would definitely be okay with that. 
I would definitely be okay with that. All right, quick hit questions. Um, real, uh, let's let's keep these short and to the point here as we wrap up the show. Uh, Jeremy, let's start with you. Um, what are the coaches saying about recruiting? What do we know? What can we have on our eyes between now and the first signing day? What should Frog fans be looking for? I think all the eight commits they have right now are going to sign early. Uh, you're obviously going to have more numbers since more players are uh, transferring out. Offensive line is still a big need. Quarterback still a big need. Uh, they're they're still going to go for another receiver. They're still going to try to get some grad transfers in. Uh, Drew Estrada is a really big target for them right now. I figure they're probably by February. They're probably going to be having a signing class around fifteen to sixteen. Um, that's that's my number right now because I, I think some of those seniors are going to be coming back. They have to have the limit for eighty five scholarships and uh I, I don't think you can sign a whole lot this class 2022 will be much different jeremy are we going to get a uh, juco or grad transfer quarterback i think they would at least l- entertain i will say there has been a quarterback that they recruited very heavily last year that's already reached out to them okay Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, one of these other complicated questions about uh, eligibility, Jeremy, are, are there any? Is there anybody set to graduate that is going to be able to that that they want to return next year that they think is a likelihood they will return next year? Spielman is one of the names you have mentioned. Yeah. Uh, Billy mentioned Pro Wells celebrated Senior Day. Does that mean he's going pro? Anything off the top of your head on who could come back for another season? I think Bethley's a, a really good candidate to come back. Um, Spillman, as I mentioned on the board today, um, trying to think of any others that well, I, I know Garrett Wallow's gone. I think Stormont's gone. Ugh. Workman's gone. I mean, Pro, Pro Wells is gone. Yeah. Pro Wells is gone. I, I really truly think Merrick's gone. He's going to keep being high on the draft boards. Um, even though he's a junior, but, uh, senior wise, I, I really can't think of if, of any other names right now off the top of my head. But it would be big to get guys like uh, Corey Bethley back and, and Spillman. Yeah. But again, it's not a hundred percent right now, so don't hold me to it. Okay. I love Billy's name, Professional Wells. That I just always get a chuckle at that. <laughs> I think I saw it from Matt Jennings. I think he had that first, but it's uh, okay. it's it's not my original, but I like it too. Okay, well, I'm going to give you all the credit for it. So. What did Clint call, Clint called him something different on his little video he did? Somebody calls him amateur. What he's not? No, who, who says he's not amateur? Wells. <laughs> no, Clint had a different nickname. I don't I think he called him professional. He called him something else. Yeah. Well, all right, Billy, for you, um, how does a referee look down the sideline and see a player step out at the six, the four, and the one and still call it a touchdown? <laughs> uh, well, I guess it is one play they changed, Doc, because they, they did pull him back. That, I, my, I think I said on Twitter, it was like he was taking a field sobriety test at 2 a.m. outside the Whataburger on the whole. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, he was all over the place on that run. But, yeah, the, the refs were in rare form on Saturday. So, look, they already hit that uh, hit the pub up for uh, for some pregame uh, warm-ups. Yeah, you never know what they're, what they're serving at halftime in the locker room either. So, all right, have either of you heard potential bowl games or potential bowl game matchup? 
what I've, well, I mean, I just read like what ESPN or whatever puts out. I know a lot of people wanted to play Armed Forces Bowl versus SMU. That's obviously off the board now because they're playing SEC versus Pac-12. What I was reading today was it looks like either the probably the Liberty Bowl. Um, if Oklahoma State beats Baylor, then probably the Liberty Bowl. Uh, and I saw it against either uh, Tennessee or Kentucky, which would be an SEC school. And But if, I think if Oklahoma State loses this game to Baylor, uh, that would put TCU in the Texas Bowl versus, again, an SEC team versus uh, like an Arkansas or LSU or was having a slightly better year. So that'd be fun. I, I signed up for an SEC team to beat uh, for that 10th game. You know, I live three quarters of a mile from the Liberty Bowl, so I am all in on the Liberty Bowl. <laughs> I I think a lot of teams are going to try to stay – geographically as close as they can to the bowl games that are close to them. Um, I I don't like the fact that TCU has been mentioned in, what is it, the Heart of Dallas Bowl? Is that even a bowl game? Or the what, first, first responders. Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, first responders. Four-man uh, bowl. Yeah, exactly. So I'm hoping something like Billy was saying, a, a scenario where they could slide into the Texas Bowl. I think Baylor might have a chance against Oklahoma State considering how well they've played on defense the last few games. They've got some offense. And can you see Oklahoma State having like four guys just opt out for the end of the year too? Because they have all these guys that could go pro and, and Baylor suddenly facing their backups. I really think Baylor could win that game. Yeah. They, they played well against Oklahoma. Yeah. Jeremy, is Sorrell still with the program? He's opted out. He quit the team, then he opted out. So he's back in Florida right now. Okay. To the disarray uh, of many frog fans, he's not going to be back then, right? That's a, that's a good question. Um, man, it's going to be tough. Just say yeah. it. it's going to be tough. Okay. Uh, do either of y'all know Savion Williams? Is is he hurt? Is it COVID? Um, do we have any knowledge on that that we can share publicly? I don't know if he. I don't know if he has the covids or what, but I thought he was a contact guy. Contact. Yeah, he might. He he might be a contact guy. Same thing, Quentin Johnston had while he missed Kansas. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sounds good. And then finally, it's not. It's not a question from our board if we don't ask. Why is our cat staff not smart enough to figure out how to get Marcel Brooks on the field? If he can play for a national championship team, why is our defense so complicated that we can't get a five-star talent on the board? Last question. What, what, I, te- what I tell the listeners of the podcast like five or six weeks ago, quit worrying about Marcel Brooks. He, I mean, if he was like a first-team guy and he was missing action – yeah, I'd be worried about Marcel Brooks, but he's not even really considered a third-string guy right now. He's a great special teams player, great athlete, but until it, it, until he starts learning X's and O's and knows what he's doing on the field when he's on there, he's not going to be seeing much playing time. That that is a fact. There's 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 no way around it. If you don't do your job well wherever you work, do you anticipate your 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 job to be there? for a long time. Probably not. So just consider that when you think of Marcel Brooks, think about yourself. If I'm not doing my job and I I don't have the tools or I don't have the, the mind power to do my job, are they going to keep me? Are they going to give me more projects? Probably not. That's the same scenario for Marcel Brooks. They're not going to put him on the field. If he's not ready, if he cannot help TCU's defense right now, he's not going to be on the field. Simple. Simple. 
You got yeah. you got Kari Coleman and Garrett Wallow anyway, so enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, we get Garrett Wallow for two more games. You should soak that up. So uh, I will. Yeah, I will too. I hear you got a pretty good uh, Garrett Wallow impersonation, Billy. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> I think I think my coach owes a little bit better. Yeah, uh, because Wallow's I think a little bit higher pitch than I that I can get to. Yeah. <laughs> I you know how excited Billy's going to be this Saturday because Billy grew up a La Tech fan. I was born in Ruston. You ask, you see, you anything about Louisiana Tech? What do you want to know about Louisiana Tech? I'm here for you. Hey, I've been to Ruston. I I have. I've been to Ruston. I've been to Houghton. I've been to Bozier. I know my way around up there. Okay. Yeah. I've 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 made some stops through Ruston to get my suspension fixed and my tires that were blown out on I-20 in Louisiana. Um, <laughs> now, once you cross the border, it's real rough over there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And Wallow said last media availability is like they want to get out of Louisiana to come play football in Texas. So <laughs> that told me something. <laughs> hey, it's. It's those Louisiana kids are going to have a blast. I'm telling you, those oh, the yeah. Louisiana kids for TCU, they're going to have a blast because it it's just like when these Texas kids play Baylor or Texas Tech, they all know each other, and it's going to be funny because you're going to have all these guys like Garrett Wallow, Kari Coleman, and Ardarius that all know these Louisiana Tech players, Darius Davis, and they're they're just going to have a blast out there. I can't wait. They're probably all four going to go off. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how um, how all the Louisiana kids play in this game. All right, fellas, we're going to bring this show to an end. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and subscribing to the Frogcast. If you haven't yet, go on iTunes and give us a rating or a review. Subscribe to us. It's an easy way for our show to drop right into your podcasting app of choice. And if you haven't yet, we want to encourage you to go to hornfrogblitz.com. Now is a great time as we are sprinting towards the first and then the second national signing day. Have a bowl game squeeze between there for you to stay logged into everything that's going on inside and around the program. Jeremy and Billy will keep you connected and informed. And so until we get back together, for Jeremy, for Billy, and for Daniel, I'm Jeff Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening to the Frogcast.